0: Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Jonah. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. "'Now, Lord, take away my life, "'for it is better for me to die than to live.' "'But the Lord replied, "'Is it right for you to be angry?' "'Jonah had gone out and sat down "'at a place east of the city. "'There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, "'and waited to see what would happen to the city. "'Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant "'and made it grow up over Jonah "'to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort, "'and Jonah was very happy about the plant. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever.
1: Uh, My name is Aaron, and uh, I am humbled and blessed to be uh, one of the pastors here at uh, Exilic. And uh, this past week, I was uh, listening to our three-year anniversary service for uh, some inspiration. And I started that sermon by saying that uh, my wife Hannah was pregnant with our second. And I mentioned that the Jews were having their third. And so it is my delight to tell you this year that we are not pregnant, (laughs) but we are a year older. And there is much to be thankful for. Uh, because you know the saying, the days are long, but the years are short. And the past four years have just gone by like a, like a blink of an eye. And so one of the reasons why we do this anniversary service is to think back and reflect back on all that God has done in our brief history. Uh, but I do want to tell you a story about something that took place almost six years ago. Uh, almost six years ago, uh, my wife and I, mostly my wife, we started a book club for um, some very dear friends of ours um, who had some questions about Christianity. And so uh, almost every month uh, we would meet together and we would have some good food and wine and cheese. And uh, every month we would go through one chapter of Tim Keller's Reason for God. And uh, sometimes they would bring some of their own, uh, their other friends that, had questions about Christianity, and I absolutely loved it. Um, I felt like every time we met, um, there were no questions that were off the table, uh, but every question was on the table. And I owe an enormous sense of debt and gratitude to them actually, because uh, they challenged me with very valid and very tough questions. And it challenged me to think more deeply about what I believed in as well. And I felt like uh, during the, the course of that year, I felt like instead of barriers being built up towards a more nuanced understanding of Christianity, I felt like bridges were being built instead. And it awakened within me a thought. How cool would it be if there were more of these types of conversations happening throughout all of our city? And it was really the, the, the book club that eventually led to the birth of Exilic, which is why we have always had a posture of not being afraid of words like doubt or not being afraid of words like skeptical or, or not being afraid of words like curious or questions or anything uh, like that. And eventually, it uh, gave birth to our church, and a lot has uh happened over the course of the past four years we began with five people and now there are on any given sunday up to 350 people that worship with us Uh, when we first started i was the only person on staff now we have four other amazing people on staff uh, heidi Jeannie, brian and Jean. and so a lot has changed Uh, on the other hand there are some things that are still charmingly the same Uh, i still print all of our Sunday bulletins (laughs) on this tiny $100 brother printer every single week to to save money for our church as much as possible. We still meet in the same venue, albeit a different chair configuration. But there is one thing that is still the same after the past four years, and that is our unwavering commitment to our mission and that is to help as many skeptics and thinkers and curious people believe in the gospel in our city as much as possible and to help as many believers think critically about our faith as much as possible. And one of the reasons why I say this is from a sociological perspective. By the year 2025, New York City will have increased another million people since the early 2000s. By 2025, we will have over 9 million people in our city. The largest populated city in our country is going to give birth to another miniature city. And church planting experts say that for every million people, you need about 1,000 churches to reach those million people. Now, I have no idea what pace we're on. But I do know that one of the reasons why we started Exilic was to help reduce that number from 1,000 to 999. Because wherever there are people, there needs to be churches. And so if you take a look at the first page of your bulletin, I want to read you something from Sam Alberry's book, Why Bother with Church. And this is what Alberry says. Um, I once heard it said that there is no such thing as a God-forsaken place, given that God is present everywhere. But there is such a thing as a church-forsaken place. For a region to be without a church means that it does not have the access it needs to the truth of God's goodness and love. Lacking a church is not equivalent to lacking a decent supermarket or movie theater. It is like lacking a hospital or a source of water it is an utter necessity and while our city has a dearth of churches in our text today the city of Nineveh had no churches and so God was obviously concerned for this city and if you take a look with me at verse 11 this is what God says in the very last verse verse 11 God says and should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? There are two reasons that God gives for his concern for the city of Nineveh one is its size, and the second is its lostness. And so, if you take a look again at verse 11, God says, Should I not be concerned about the great city of Nineveh? Throughout the book of Jonah, uh, God repeatedly calls the city of Nineveh the great city of Nineveh. In fact, he calls it the great city of Nineveh three times. He doesn't call it the godless city of Nineveh or this wicked city of Nineveh, but he calls it this great city of Nineveh. And the reason why God calls Nineveh great is because of the sheer amount of people in the city. In ancient culture, your average city had about 3,000 people there. But here in Nineveh, there were over 120,000 people, which meant that Nineveh was not a metropolis, but Nineveh was a megapolis. Bill Crispin once said that God loves, uh, th- that, that in the country, there are more plants than people. In the city, there are more people than plants. God loves people more than he loves plants, and therefore, he loves the city more than the country. Now, Crispin wasn't saying this as urban propaganda. He's not saying this to be anti-green or anti-environmental, but his point was this. There is only one thing that is made in the image of God, and it is not plants, but it is people. And there is more image of God per square foot in the cities than there are in the country. So I want you to imagine with me that the bulletin that you're holding right now is not made out of recycled paper, which it is, but it is actually made out of ancient papyrus. In fact, this this piece of ancient papyrus is so old, it dates all the way back to 5,000 years ago, making it one of the oldest pieces of literature in history, which would also mean that this, this artifact would be priceless. Now, if you knew that this bulletin was an ancient piece of papyrus dating back to 5,000 years ago, wouldn't it change the way that you're holding the bulletin right now? Wouldn't you hold it so much more carefully and so much more delicately? People are more valuable than plants. People are more valuable than ancient papyrus. And we know that because every single one of us is made in the image of God. And the fact that God knows exactly how many people are in the city of Nineveh, not 80,000, not 100,000, but 120,000 demonstrates that he values people. This is one of the reasons why one of our uh, philosophies of ministry at our church is valuing people over projects. Especially as we start doing more stuff, we always have to remember that people are the most important thing. People matter more than projects. And so God is concerned for this city because of the sheer amount of people that are in the city. But there is a second reason why God is concerned about the city of Nineveh. Not only because of its sheer vastness and greatness, but also the text says in verse 11, they cannot tell their right hand from their left or their left hand from their right. And what that means is that there's a sort of level, some sort of confusion that they have. They're uncertain, particularly about the meaning of life. William James uh, was a philosopher at Harvard. And for those of you who are philosophers, you know that William James was the father of pragmatism. And William James once said that we may be in the universe like dogs in a library. The dogs see the books, they hear the conversations, but they have no inkling of its meaning at all. And William James is saying that we are like the dogs in, this, in the library. We see the stars, we hear the conversation, but we have no inkling of its meaning at all. You know, one of the things that I love, uh, even more than dessert and sports, which is saying a lot, one of the things that I absolutely love is hearing your stories. Uh, particularly those of you who are on a quest to find the real meaning of life, or on a quest for the truth. Love hearing those stories. And I love asking questions like, how'd you, how'd you find us? How'd you get to where you're, you're, you're at? Tell me your story. And I just love hearing about the quest that many of you are on at our church. And I love reading about the quest that uh, others have gone on before us as well. And one of the, the people that I love reading about is Leo Tolstoy, the, the Russian novelist. And in Tolstoy's uh, autobiography, A Confession, he talks about this quest that he's on. And if I can read it for us on the the first page of our bulletin, this is what Tolstoy says. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, the, the Tolstoy experts in this room can correct me on this, but I do believe that he wrote a confession after he wrote some of his other books. Yet, this is still what he says. Uh, The question brought me to the edge of the abyss when I was 50 years old. The question is, why should I live? Or to put it another way, is there any meaning in my life that will not be destroyed by my inevitably approaching death? My deeds, whatever they may be, will be forgotten sooner or later, and I myself will be no more. Why then do anything? I therefore could not attach a rational meaning to a single act of my entire life. The only thing that amazed me was how I had failed to realize this from the beginning. How could anyone fail to see this? I was 50 years old before I sat down and said, I can't attach any meaning to what I'm doing. I never sat back and thought, what good is it going to do? It's possible to live as long as life intoxicates us. But once we're sober, we cannot help seeing it's all a delusion. There's nothing funny or witty about it at all. It's only cruel and stupid. And throughout uh, Tolstoy's confession, he talks about just this, this existential angst that he feels uh, about the meaning and purpose of life. And if you read the rest of the confession, Tolstoy eventually turns to religion to make sense of, of life. Now, his theology was not exactly orthodox, but he does turn to religion to help him make sense of the life that he's living. And the point is this, all of us in this room, whether you're religious or not here today, all of us in this room need a story to help us understand the meaning and purpose of life. And I'll give you an example of how this works. Uh, in After Virtue, uh, Alistair McIntyre says, imagine you're standing at a bus stop and someone comes up to you and whispers, histrionicus. Histrionicus, Histrionicus, is the name of the common wild duck. Now, what would you say if you were standing at a bus stop and someone whispered to you, Histrionicus, three times, and said that was the name of the Latin name for the common wild duck? how How would you interpret that event? You would need a story. So your story could be, this guy is mentally ill. Your story could be, this person is drunk. Your story could be, this person is a Russian spy giving me a code. Your story could be, uh, this person is a scientist who mistook me for somebody else. But here is the point. You need a story. Without a story, you can't understand what just took place. You can't interpret reality. And so here is a question. What story will help us understand the four most fundamental things in life, our origin, Where did we come from? Meaning, what is the purpose of life? Morality, how do we live our lives? And destiny, what happens after we die? What worldview, what story is comprehensive enough and beautiful enough to help us understand origin, meaning, morality, and destiny? And I would argue with you today that I believe that it is Christianity It is the most comprehensive and beautiful story ever told that tells us where we come from, how to live our lives, the meaning and purpose of life, morality, and our destiny, what happens after we die. But Christianity is not only a story that helps us understand our identity, but Christianity is a story that God also invites us to be a part of, to be a part of a larger story, living for something bigger than just our own stories. And this invitation is something that God extends to Jonah to live for something just bigger than himself, to live to save the city called Nineveh. But instead of being a willing participant to save the city of Nineveh, Jonah refuses, and he is unwilling. Now here's the question, why is he unwilling? Well, if you'll take a look with me at the very top verse in chapter three, verse 10, This is what it says, When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. Now, why was Jonah angry? Lifeguards don't get angry when they save people's lives. Doctors don't get angry when they save people's lives. Firefighters, they don't get angry when they can save a life. So what's up with Jonah? Why is he angry that God had mercy and grace for this entire uh, city? Why was Jonah so upset? And I would say two reasons. Number one, he was a nationalist. Jonah cared very much for his own countrymen, and Nineveh posed a threat to his country. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. You know what modern-day Assyria is? Iraq. The great-great-great-great-grandfathers of ISIS and the Taliban were the Ninevites. And we know that throughout history that the Ninevites were one of the most cruelest and oppressive regimes in history. How do we know that? Well, their history can actually be found to this day in most most of the great museums around the world because their history was actually written on stone. And so some of their history dates back all the way to 850 B.C. under the rule of Shalmaneser III. And so we can read about the history of the Ninevites dating back this far. And we know that they were absolutely cruel and oppressive. For example, whenever the Ninevites would capture people, it wouldn't be strange for them to cut off the captive's tongue, to cut off both of their legs, and to cut off one of their arms. Now, you might be asking, why would they only cut off one of their arms when they cut off both of their legs? The reason why they would only cut off one of their arms is so that they can mockingly shake the other person's hand as they bled to death. They would burn children alive. They would stretch a captive's body uh, by their arms and their by their legs, and they would flay their skin right off their bodies and hang it on the city walls. They would tell family members to, to carry poles with their other family members' heads decapitated on the poles. This was a absolutely cruel and oppressive people. So you can almost understand why Jonah did not want to go to the city of Nineveh. You can understand why Jonah wanted the city of Nineveh judged. He didn't want it saved. But there's a second reason why Jonah was angry about God's grace. He was angry about God's grace because he didn't understand God's grace. If you take a look at verse 1, what does it say? It says that Jonah thought that what God did was wrong, not right. Jonah had an understanding of God's justice, but he couldn't fathom or understand God's grace. So what is grace? Well, there's a uh, teacher who called one of her students' parents. And she called up the parents, and the, and the parents are thinking, oh, my gosh, what did, what did my kids say? And, and the teacher says, well, every year I give a writing exercise. And I start the story, and I ask the students to finish the story. And so the story goes like this. Uh, there was an ant and a grasshopper. And during the summertime, the ant worked very diligently to store away its food for the wintertime while the grasshopper just played and didn't work at all. Fast forward five or six months later, now it's winter time. Now the ant has a lot of food stored away for the winter, but the grasshopper has no food at all. And so the grasshopper sheepingly goes to the ant's door and knocks on its door to ask for food. And the teacher goes, now you finish the story. And so she tells the parents it's usually one of two endings. Either A, the ant gives some of its food to the grasshopper, or B, the ant gives none of its food to the grasshopper because the grasshopper deserves this, it was lazy. But she said, you know, out of all my years of teaching, it's always been one of those two endings. But your daughter, she gave a third ending I had never, ever heard before. And she said, your daughter wrote that the ant did not give none of its food away. The ant did not give some of its food away. But the ant, according to your daughter, gave all of its food away. So the grasshopper could live at the expense of the ant's life. And underneath her essay, she drew a picture of three little crosses. Now the teacher didn't know what that story was pointing to, but you do. We are the grasshoppers. Jesus is the ant. The grasshoppers don't deserve a single amount of food, but out of sheer grace, the ant gives everything away to the grasshopper, even at the expense of its own life. And that is what grace is, receiving something that we don't deserve. And it was grace, God's grace to the Ninevites that saved their city, and you know what? It is the same message of grace, the same message of grace that will save the people in our city. Now, what specifically is this message of grace? Well, there is another city not unlike the city of Nineveh, and they were the two cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And much like Jonah, there was another person named Abraham who willingly went to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And when you read Genesis 18, Abraham prays for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Actually, this prayer in Genesis 18, it's the first prayer that we see in the Bible. And in this prayer, Abraham is praying on behalf of the city. But if you take a look at it more carefully, Abraham is not only praying for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their wickedness and their their idolatry. He's not only praying for these cities, but he's actually priesting on behalf of these cities. You know what a priest is? A priest, very simply, is a bridge between God and the people. And we know that he's priesting or being a mediator or or inter. Cesar on behalf of the cities, because of what he says. And so, this is Abraham's case that he brings before God. And he says, God, are you really going wipe to out, wipe out these entire cities? Are you really going to wipe everyone out? What if there are just, what if there are 50 righteous people there? Are you really going to wipe out the entire cities? And so, God says, If there are 50 righteous people, I won't wipe out the entire city. And so, Abraham says, I know that I am. But dust and ashes. But let's just say there are like five less. What if there are 45 people? Are you really going to wipe out these entire cities? And God says, Very well, if there are 45 people, I will save the city. And so Abraham says, Well, if I can once more, what if there are 40? What if there are 30? What if there are 20? What if there are 10? And what Abraham is doing here is he is making a theological case. Can the righteousness of the few save the lives of the many? Can the righteousness of the few save the lives of the many? Now, we know how this story goes. Eventually, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, unlike Nineveh, are judged and destroyed. Now, here's a question, why? The truth of the matter is, Abraham could have said, what if there was just one righteous person Would you spare these entire cities? And you know what God would have said? If there was just one righteous person, I will save the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. But you know what? Even if Abraham said one, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah would not have been saved. Why? Romans 3 verse 10. There is no one righteous. Not even one. You see, Abraham was trying to be a priest to save the city. But you know what the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah needed? They needed a better mediator. They needed a better priest. They needed someone that was even more righteous than Abraham. And while Sodom and Gomorrah did not have one, we do. And that is Jesus Christ. And because Jesus Christ is our great mediator, our great high priest who intercedes on our behalf, We can have hope for the great city that we lived in. Jonah unwillingly went to the city of Nineveh. Jesus willingly comes to us. Jonah is filled with no compassion. There are 48 verses in the book of Jonah. You know that only one out of the 48 verses is of him preaching? And you know what his message is? It's turn or burn. (laughs) Not exactly loving or compassionate and Jesus comes and his message is turn for i will burn for you and Jesus burns on the cross for our sins Jonah climbs up a high hill sits on a bench to watch the cities of Nineveh to watch the city of Nineveh get judged and to watch his enemies be punished Jesus climbs up to a cross to be punished for his enemies for us and when you realize what Jesus, our mediator, has done for us and how he is the hope, when you enter into a relationship with him, do you know what happens to you? You also turn into a mini high priest, a mini priest. First Peter says that we are a royal priesthood, which means that we sort of also become a bridge between God and the people in our city. What if you're here in the city What if you're here in the city right now, not just to use the resources of our city and our prestigious universities and our jobs and to acquire more equity and financial capital. What if you're here in the city, not just to plunder the city for its resources, but what if God has brought you to New York City to be a bridge for the people in our city between God and all of your neighbors? What if God has us here for a bigger reason, for a historic opportunity such as this, when the world is coming into our city and there are not enough churches? And I'll close with this. Tim Chester lives in northern England, and he says that on, in the winter, uh, it can be very dark and very cold. And some of the houses in northern, uh, uh, northern England, they're like right up against the sidewalk. And so when you're walking outside on a dark, cold, wintry night, sometimes you can sort of peek through the windows into people's homes. And when you peek through into people's homes, you can see bright lights, sometimes a fireplace that keeps the whole house warm. You can see people playing board games and laughing hysterically. You can see people eating good food and having conversations. And Chester says, what if churches could look like these homes, that in the midst of the dark world that we live in and sometimes the very dark city that we live in, what if our church, what if our community groups, what if our homes could look like that bright light that is filled with warmth for those that are peeking through? That is my prayer for our church as we look forward to year five, that we would have a continual, uh, continuing unwavering commitment Uh, to the people in our city because you know what as much as God loved Nineveh he also loves our city as well and if God loves our city so should we let's pray together Lord help us not to have a uh, disdain or apathy for the city that we live in like Jonah had towards Nineveh but help us to see the city through your eyes Help us to view people not as obstacles that are in our way when we have to walk to a certain place, but help us to truly value all the people in our city. We live in the most densest populated city in the country, and we have such a wonderful opportunity to be a blessing to it. And that is my hope and our prayer. So grateful for all that you have done the past four years, and I'm praying that you'll continually use our church to be a beacon of light for your greatness and glory. Amen.